Ever wondered how we went from imagining space travel to landing on the moon? Or from dreaming about sentient machines to having Siri in your pocket? Join me as I explore crazy concepts and incredible ideas from science fiction and how scientists and inventors have turned them into reality. This is episode three, the one with the bananas. Bananas have been one of the great success stories of agriculture. If you hopped into a time machine and headed back to between 7,000 and 10,000 years ago in Papua New Guinea, you might have some trouble finding a snack. While bananas back then were small, roundish, and full of large hard seeds, imagine a pomegranate about the size of a tennis ball, but where the seeds aren't edible. Millennia of selectively breeding and crossbreeding banana varieties have produced modern bananas elongated with much smaller seeds and allegedly much tastier pulp. Although, if you haven't tasted an ancient banana, it's hard to justify that last claim. Corn is another success story. Modern maize varieties are a thousand times larger than ancient corn, which used to have tiny little ears the size of a finger, with a handful of corn kernels in each. Now we have corn cobs the length of an adult hand and diameter of a soft drink can, with much higher sugar content and far more kernels on a cob. Selective breeding has, in short, made bananas more appealing and corn amazingly amazing. There are lots of crops that used to look very different from today's produce. Carrots used to be purple. Peaches used to be the same size as cherries and slightly salty. Watermelons used to have more white pith than red flesh. My favourite selective breeding story is the Brassica oleracea, the humble wild mustard plant native to the coastal Mediterranean. This one little versatile plant was selectively bred over hundreds of years to create several cultivars, or subspecies, that we now recognise as cabbage, kale, collard greens, kohlrabi, cauliflower, broccoli, gailan, and Brussels sprouts. Delicious. And all from the one plant. You see, humans have been mucking around with genetics long before we knew what genetics were. And not just with plants, either. We bred domesticated dogs from wolves and pigs from wild boar. Cattle were carefully chosen and bred for their milk and meat production. And the idea of improving plants and animals through breeding naturally transferred to people. Plato's Republic, in around 375 BCE, argued that ensuring marriages and children among families of high class and discouraging marriages amongst the lower classes would create a superior society. The principle has already been laid down that the best of either sex should be united with the best as often, and the inferior with the inferior as seldom as possible, and that they should rear the offspring of the one sort of union, but not of the other, if the flock is to be maintained in first-rate condition. The proper officers will take the offspring of the good parents to the pen or fold, and there they will deposit them with certain nurses who dwell in a separate quarter. But the offspring of the inferior, or of the better when they chance to be deformed, will be put away in some mysterious, unknown place, as they should be. Sometimes reading the classics is a little depressing. Plato also says that the prime of a woman's life ends at 40, and that marriage should be arranged by the ruling class for the good of the people. Sometimes I wonder if the Republic was in fact a cunningly disguised satire. The idea of creating a better society through good breeding stuck around. It saw a resurgence with Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species in 1859. 
However, it wouldn't get a catchy name until Darwin's half-cousin Francis Galton coined the term eugenics in 1869. Galton was enamoured with the idea that humanity could be improved if people from good stock were encouraged to reproduce. He proposed a ranking system for families based on their perceived value to society, which sounds eerily similar to the social credit system recently introduced in China. Galton also discovered the statistical concept of regression towards the mean, but I'm not sure he ever realised the implications of his statistical discoveries for his sociological beliefs. The key thing that we learned from the popularity of Darwin and Galton was that a little science can be a dangerous thing. A lot of people of this time believed that you could breed out undesirable characteristics such as laziness, criminal tendencies, immorality, and even poverty from society by encouraging people of superior stock to reproduce. Now, before you get too complacent about living in more enlightened times, just remember that when Tony Abbott was the Prime Minister of Australia in 2013, he suggested that paid parental leave was vital to encourage women of calibre to have children. The popularity of this idea of improving society through good breeding permeated through to utopian fiction. Between 1800 and about 1920, selective breeding was presented as a positive way of creating a more civilised and sophisticated society. An early example is Mary Bradley Lane's Mizora in 1880, where women have overthrown the Malrun government and installed a new government consisting entirely of women, and eliminated men entirely from society in the process. The constitution of the national government provided for the exclusion of the male sex from all affairs and privileges for a period of 100 years. At the end of that time, not a representative of the sex was in existence. Mary Bradley Lane is a little short on the details of exactly how this society reproduces. I followed her into the chemist's laboratory. She bade me look into a microscope that she designated and tell her what I saw. An exquisitely minute cell in violent motion, I answered. Daughter, she said solemnly, you are now looking upon the germ of all life, be it animal or vegetable, a flower or a human being. It has that one common beginning. We have advanced far enough in science to control its development. This so-called secret of life in Mizora could be a few things. Pathogenesis, cloning, artificial sperm. At any rate, in Mizora men have been redundant for over 3,000 years, and every single woman and girl is blonde-haired and blue-eyed. Yes, I too am slightly alarmed by the foreshadowing of this book. They also eat lab-produced meat, another little science fiction idea we've just turned into reality. This idea about an isolated society of women who reproduce by pathogenesis would show up again in Herland, written in 1915 by feminist Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Now, after this date, the science fiction starts to evolve towards more artificially induced methods of genetic change after the discovery of mutagens, physical and chemical compounds that could alter the genetic material of plants and animals. But in order for this to happen, we have to go back a little bit in time and pick up the science again. The story of genetics as a science opens in 1822 towards the end of the Industrial Revolution. To give you a brief recap of the scientific advancements of around about that time, the last 40 years had been spent creating machines to speed up processes in textiles, mining and farming. 
Electricity was just starting to take off, with Alessandro Volta inventing an early battery in 1800, and Francis Ronalds building the first working electric telegraph in 1816. Into this world, in 1822, Johann Mendel was born to a poor farming family in a rural area of what we now call the Czech Republic. The local priest thought he was a bit of a bright spark, and convinced his parents to send him away for further schooling when he was 11 years old. And he was a bright spark, because after finishing school in 1840, he went on to study at the Philosophical Institute of the University of Olmutz. Mendel did not find a university life easy. Despite being most excellent at physics and maths, he was still poor, and had to scrape up cash from tutoring other students to make ends meet. He also suffered from depression, a feeling many university students know all too well. But he pushed on. Mendel completed his studies in 1843, aged about 21, and promptly decided to pass over the family farm inheritance in favour of entering a monastery. Monk Mendel, Gregor, as his new friends knew him, found his duties to visit sick and dying parishioners pretty distressing. So he found a substitute teaching job instead and was apparently pretty good at it. Unfortunately, new laws were passed and Mendel had to go back to university in 1850, aged 28, after failing teacher certification. It's lucky for us that he did, because it's actually here that Mendel studied anatomy and physiology of plants, which would eventually make him famous. He headed back to the monastery in 1853, and in 1854 convinced the abbot to let him undertake scientific experiments in hybridisation. Now, if your school had a farm, like mine, you probably sat through agriculture lessons teaching you about the benefits of crossbreeding and hybridisation, higher offspring survival, increasing growth rate, and higher yields. The abbot and Mendel wanted to know why some hybrids produced offspring that were identical to the parent varieties and could produce yields at consistent and predictable rates, while others would revert to the original crossbred species after a generation. You see, the monastery had a herd of merino sheep and the abbot was concerned about profits from wool, given the strong market for wool being produced from the British colonies of Australia. So if Mendel could somehow find a way to make better wool or more wool from his experiments, the abbot might be able to make more money. Mendel chose peas for his experiments, mostly because they're pretty easy to grow. Another pretty cool thing about peas is that they're really easy to cross-pollinate by hand. Let's say you want to cross green-seeded peas with yellow-seeded peas to see what colour seeds their offspring have. You open the flower bud from a green pea plant, remove the pollen-producing stamen, the male parts of the flower, pop open the flower bud for a yellow pea plant and dust the pollen on the stigma, the female parts of the flower. Now, it also helps if you remove the pollen from the yellow pea plant so that it can't self-pollinate. All you need is something to cut the stamen with, say, a knife, and something to dust the pollen onto the stigma with, say, a paintbrush. There's nothing too technologically advanced about that. People knew in 1854 that certain types of peas would always produce offspring that looks like themselves. There were yellow-seeded peas that always produced yellow-seeded peas, and green-seeded peas that always produced green-seeded peas, no matter how many generations you bred them for. They called these types of plants pure breeding, and they were a pretty big deal. Because you knew what you were getting. Some yellow-seeded peas, however, 
occasionally produced green-seeded offspring. This was suboptimal. After all, when you're growing crops, it would be nice to have some sort of certainty around what produce you're going to get. Mendel found that when you crossed pure-breeding yellow-seeded peas with pure-breeding green-seeded peas, they produced yellow-seeded peas every time. However, when you cross these first-generation peas with each other, the second generation of peas would occasionally have a green-seeded pea. In fact, one in every four peas in the second generation was green-seeded, despite there being zero green-seeded peas in the first generation. So what's going on here? Mendel described this in terms of dominant and recessive traits. You probably remember playing rock, scissors, paper in school. Let's think of the yellow-seeded peas as being rock, and the green-seeded peas as being scissors. When you cross two pure-breeding pea plants together, each plant passes on genetic material to the next generation. Yellow pea plus yellow pea makes yellow pea. Rock versus rock, it's a draw. Green peas and green peas produce more green peas. Scissors versus scissors, another draw. But a yellow pea and a green pea, well, that's rock versus scissors and we all know what's happened there. Rock beats scissors and the new pea plant has yellow seeds. Don't be fooled though. It's still carrying around that invisible green pea marker, what we now call a gamete. It's just that when a pea plant inherits a yellow gamete from one parent and a green gamete from the other, the yellow gamete wins. It's dominant. The green gamete is recessive, meaning it only gets a chance to show up when it gets paired with another recessive green gamete. So back to the peas, and this time let's trawl through all the options. Yellow pollen plus yellow stigma makes yellow offspring. Yellow pollen plus green stigma makes yellow offspring. Green pollen plus yellow stigma again makes yellow offspring. And finally, green pollen plus green stigma makes green offspring. One in four of the offspring will be green. This is how Mendel found in his experimental results that one in every four pea plants in the second generation expressed the recessive green seed gene. Although some people speculate his numbers may have been too accurate and he might have fiddled the results a little. What's impressive about Mendel's experiments here is his commitment. The guy really went all in on these peas. I hope the other monks at the monastery liked eating them as much as he liked breeding them. Mendel tracked heritability of seven traits. Seed shape, seed colour, flower colour, flower position, pod shape, pod colour and plant height. He let these hybrid peas self-pollinate for years while meticulously recording the characteristics of the offspring before publishing his work in 1865. But no one read it. Mendel in the monastery with his paintbrush would go ignored by science until 1900. The rediscovery of Mendel's research in 1900 sparked new interest in genetics. Between 1920 and 1950, scientists were also discovering that exposure to x-rays and mustard gas could cause mutations in fruit flies. And science fiction responded, pivoting from plot lines around bloodlines and breeding to more artificial means. Aldous Huxley's Brave New World in 1932 grows people in bottles, their social caste predetermined by adding chemicals into the bottles, much like baking different flavours and textures of cake. Exposure to radiation gave us the Daleks and Daredevil, while chemical accidents have given us the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Alex Mack. The discovery of DNA in 1944 and the double helix structure of DNA in 1953 by Watson and Crick shifted genetics up a gear. 
1972, Paul Berg created the first artificially assembled genetic material using viruses. Frederick Sanger found a way to identify the exact sequence of genetic information in an organism in 1977, and science fiction went off. These discoveries brought a fresh wave of science fiction inspiration, cloning in Jurassic Park, lab-grown humans in Blade Runner, and even superpowers through a mutated gene in the X-Men. It took us a few decades to work through some of the more complicated facets of gene expression in this new world of genetics. We now know that some genes are less like rock versus scissors and more like rock scissors paper lizards rock. Eye colour alone looks to be influenced by at least eight genes. And while we're not quite caught up with science fiction, we're getting closer every year. We haven't yet cloned dinosaurs like Jurassic Park, but we have cloned Dolly the Sheep. We're not quite up to speed with Huxley's bottle-growing cast or Philip K. Dick's replicants from Blade Runner, but we have genetic testing for fetuses and newborns that can identify genetic disorders early. And while we're not quite at the level of genetic selection and enhancement in Gattaca, we do have gene editing tools. CRISPR literally allows us to slice and splice gene segments into crops, making them resistant to weed killers, toxic to insects, and rich in vitamins. It's literally the cutting edge of gene technology. So what's stopping us copying and pasting DNA segments into humans? Thanks for listening. I'll be releasing a few more podcasts over the next two weeks before my university course ends. Check out my website for more, and if you like the show, hit the share button.